so pleased to have Audrey Anderson, former general counsel at Vanderbilt University, joining us today for the podcast. She's had a wealth of experience guiding Vanderbilt through difficult times and, and massive change, both on the higher education part and on the athletics part. She has always involved herself in matters involving Title IX and other investigations, policy reviews, revisions, employment and labor issues, including tenure cases, and regulatory compliance counseling. She'll also tell us that she occasionally looked at contracts for halftime shows. So here now is my interview with Audrey Anderson. Audrey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Karen. I'm happy to be here. So I'm really glad that your schedule permitted us to have a conversation today. You are the former general counsel at Vanderbilt University. As this podcast focuses on trustees and presidents providing oversight and direction for college athletics, let's start about the ways your job responsibilities intersected with those areas, again, with regards to college athletics. Can you walk us through that? Sure, I'd be happy to, Karen. So the, the trick, I think, to running a good college athletics department is to treat athletics as you would treat any other department within the university. So when I dealt with um, the chancellor at Vanderbilt, at Vanderbilt the chancellor is the president, I would bring to his attention those um, matters that had a legal component that I thought um, would rise to his level. Um, so in uh, athletics, those things might have to do with employment, and the employment-related matters that would come forward were often issues with a coach that might make it into, a, into the public eye. It might be student-related matters. So if there was alleged student misconduct um, engaged in by a student athlete, that would become a matter of media attention. I would want to make sure that the um, chancellor knew about that so that he wasn't surprised. Now, in talking about those two things, I've already kind of broken the first rule I set out, which is you should treat athletics like any other part of the university. The, the trick in it is that you cannot treat athletics like any other part of the university because nobody else does. So there was nowhere else in the university where I would be talking about day-to-day employment-related matters for somebody at the level of employment that a coach was at. Many of our coaches did not report directly to the athletic director. So this is somebody who's two or three levels down in a reporting chain from the president. But nonetheless, if there was any kind of an employment-related issue for any coach, I would make sure that the president, the chancellor, knew about it. And that's because if there was any coach with any kind of an issue, it was always a possibility that that was going to become a matter of local, at least, media attention. And I wanted to make sure that the chancellor knew about it and knew that the right legal advice was being given and that I was on the right track in terms of where I was going with my legal advice. And the same thing with the student. And that's one of the sad realities is that um, if you are a student athlete in a revenue sport, football, men's basketball, um, and you get into any kind of trouble, it's going to be usually on the pages of your local paper, whereas your classmate could do the same thing or worse, and no one is going to necessarily know about it. Um, So with that lens, I would talk to the president about employment-related matters, student-related matters, 
And then business-related matters, large contracts. Um, think um, uh, contracts for athletic apparel, um, sometimes use of our athletic facilities um, by, uh, by a community group or more often if some kind of a pro um, enterprise wanted to use some of our athletic facilities, I'd make sure that the chancellor was looped in and knew what was going on. And of course, if there were any major um, construction um, projects, we would make sure that um, the chancellor was looped into it. And then I also wanted to make sure that um, the chancellor was apprised of things that were going on in what I call the general environment of athletics. Things that might end up hitting our university or might not, but I wanted to make sure that he knew about them. So the concussion litigation that um, hit colleges and universities and the foot started in football but went everywhere, uh, name, image, and likeness litigation, pay for play. Um, while I was there, there was also some litigation about uh, student athletes getting paid under the uh, wage and hour laws. So to make sure that he knew about those general um, developments in the law so that if they hit Vanderbilt, it wouldn't be a surprise. So those are, those are the kind of things that I would talk to my um, my chancellor or president about. It's hard, almost hard to believe that, you know, your portfolio wasn't exclusively in the athletics department with all of those comprehensive issues. Uh, I mean, did you have somebody in your office who specialized in this or was this your area? How did that work? So I was, I was very fortunate at Vanderbilt that I had for a university of a relatively large team. So I had one lawyer on my staff who... Part of his job, it was not the only thing he did, but part of his responsibility was to be um, in touch day-to-day with um, athletics. So he was really my go-to person for athletics matters. But I certainly was involved on anything that um, reached the level of the chancellor. And um, athletics did take up a relatively um, large amount of my time. But again, it was because uh, it uh, had some of the reputational risk uh, was very much tied up with uh, our athletics department, and not because our athletics department was any more risky than any other university's athletics department. It's just because that's the way it is. A lot of people, of course, call athletics your front, the front porch of your university uh, because it's what everybody looks at. And so you just have to make sure that things there are as ship-shape as possible. Right, right. Um, were you there when, when Vanderbilt made the decision to move athletics away from the athletic director and onto student affairs? I think that's what the restructure was. Or was that b- before your time? That was, that was before my time. Okay. And, uh, it actually was, uh, I came to Vanderbilt, um, at a, at a time that they, so let me, my predecessor, David Williams was in charge of athletics and the general counsel's office. So he was the person who, um, Gordon Gee, who was the chancellor when that move was made, it basically was just to change the name. It wasn't that they got rid of an athletics director, they just took away the title. So David Williams had all the responsibilities of an athletics director, but he just had the title of vice chancellor for student affairs and general counsel. But for eight or ten years, David wore both hats. He was functionally the athletic director and the general counsel. And then in 2013, they decided to 
separate those roles. So David stayed as a vice chancellor for student affairs. They also gave him the title of athletic director, and they gave me the title and responsibilities of the general counsel. So my next question was going to be about the kinds of um, uh, dialogues you or your office would have with the athletic director, but it, it leads to an interesting question. How does it work when the athletic director and the general counsel are the same person? <laughs> Well, I wasn't there when the athletic director and the general counsel were the same person. I have to say that um, David uh, was um, a wonderful client and um, completely stepped aside and let me do all the legal work. But he was a wonderful client, that he was a very smart and wise lawyer and administrator. And I was really blessed because he always had um, the best interest of our student athletes um, front and center and he really emphasized the student and student athlete so he had um, he'd been given his opportunity to get an education through being a scholarship um, track and field athlete uh, when he was a young man what uh, a difference that made in his life and he went on to get a JD and an LLM and um so he really, he really, really appreciated that. So he was a wonderful client and uh, that he, I knew he understood what I was talking about and he let me make the legal calls and he also, and, and I also know he was very aware of what calls he got to make as the client. Right. And I let him make those calls. Right, right. Well, that sounds like an ideal working relationship. Now, now yeah. if you take it to somebody who doesn't quite have the same synergies that you had we are just working with the athletic director as a truly separate what are the kinds of things that you would focus on in your conversations with them well you know i think karen that that relationship is a really important relationship um and it's going to be really different in every institution uh and you really i think general counsel really have to kind of take uh the lead from their president uh, in, as to how it's best for them to interact with the athletic director. I mean, we all know that there are some schools where the athletic director wields an awful lot of power, and I think that at a school like that, you really would have to think very carefully about how you can be most effective. And that's just part of being a good lawyer. You always have to think about how can you be most effective with this particular client. And so you just really have to think about um, how you do that best and when you want to get help from your uh, president in terms of things you um, want to talk to your athletic director about. And, you know, you're always best off, though, if you can um, explain to your client, be the athletic director or anybody else, uh, the parameters within which they can operate, the pluses and minuses of the different positions, they could take and, you know, what you see as, as possibly going wrong if they um, take one course of action rather than another. I think for me, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty easy with an athletic director because of that dynamic I explained at the front. You can say to them, you know, you know, if you do this, it, it's going to be on the front page of the paper. Right. Um, and, and how are you going to feel? How is the university going to look? when this story is written, because this is how it will be written, and it will, it will be unfair, uh, but this is how they're going to characterize it. And I think you could avoid that if you took this other action. So just think about that when you're making your decision. Right. And so it's, 
Whereas with other people in the university, they can say, oh, nobody's ever going to find out, or they're never going to care, so I'm never going to have to face that. The athletic director knows that he or she is going to have to face that, um, that kind of scrutiny. Uh, and I think that there have been enough athletic directors recently who have gotten into hot water and had to leave their jobs for you know, trying to do things in a way that's not by the book that you hope that over time they are becoming a little more compliance-minded. It's exactly the reason we're doing this podcast, to get people to think, you know, more holistically about how all of these different positions intersect with with the legal and risk management ideas that, that inevitably, inevitably come across your desk on a daily basis. So one of the things you mentioned to me is that NCAA compliance uh, director in the athletics department had a dotted line to you. Can you explain how that worked? Yeah, I thought that um, just uh, for... Um, I, I wanted it to be absolutely clear to the person who was in charge of NCAA compliance that they could always come to me as somebody outside of athletics with any concerns about the way that the university was handling any NCAA compliance matter. Uh, and I did that without having, without seeing anything that gave me any cause for concern about NCAA compliance, and I never had any cause for concern at Vanderbilt. But I just looked at that reporting and I thought, you know what, that would be a place where it would be awfully easy for that person to feel like they needed to cut corners if the athletic director said they should. Right. So I, I just set up a regular meeting um, that ended up being a monthly meeting with that person to talk to them about what's going on, have we had to report anything, how did that go, what, what, what's up with it. And a lot of months we didn't have much to say, and then we just have a quick telephone conversation. But by having that relationship, having the dotted line reporting structure, I felt comfortable that if there ever was anything that that person felt like they needed somebody outside of athletics to talk to, they could come talk to me and that the university was, was better off for it. And um, I felt more comfortable. And the athletic director had absolutely no problem with that. Okay. He was uh, completely comfortable with it, too. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. And then you mentioned also about, you know, you, you also provided uh, guidance and oversight for a broader range of contracts. Does that include game contracts or what we call guarantee game contracts? Well, that's something that my, you know, the, the lawyer who reported to me, um, you know, that, that comes and goes. So there were, when we were doing our best with athletics, would be when somebody was in that position who was doing a contract who would bring um, lots of things to our, um, to our lawyer. So I never got involved with anything like that. I might talk at a high level with the athletic director about it. But I never got involved with anything on a lower level, and I'm not sure that my um, day-to-day lawyer did either, though I know that at the end of the time I was there, the, the business person in athletics who, who was in charge of all contracts um, did have very regular communications with the lawyer on my staff. Okay. And that's, and that's what it's all about. It's all about, and that's why I wanted to have one person on my staff responsible for athletics so that... He could go over there and, you know, walk down the hallway and people would be like, hey, you know, I have a question for you. 
Um, and I would do that from time to time too. I'd go meet with the athletic director in his office and take a circuitous route to get to his office and talk to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it's not just, um, oh, the lawyer's here, something bad must be happening. But, and oh, it's Audrey. Hey, I've got a question for her. Right. And a lot of times their questions would be, you know, about whatever scandal was going on in the paper. Um, but I'd try to know about that and be knowledgeable about that and hope that they would come to me if there was a real legal question they had about their jobs. Well, that makes sense. Being visible prompts those kinds of informal conversations for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You mentioned also uh, training for staff and students. I assume those are things like um, sexual harassment and, um, you know, compliance with campus policies. Is it more than that or is it things like that? No, that's, that's pretty much what it, what it was, to make sure that I was talking with the athletic director and we were on the same page with the, um, where he should be getting that training for his students and his staff, um, how frequently it should be going on, to make sure that um, we were both comfortable with it. And shortly after I got to the university, there was a very high-profile sexual assault um, that uh, had to do with um, a student victim and um, four members of the football team. And so in the wake of that, uh, we had to be very uh, cognizant about what we were doing to uh, train the student athletes and the coaches and everybody in athletics to make sure that we were setting the right tone and that they were getting um, the right kind of message about what was expected That must, must have been a very difficult situation to manage. You say that happened at the beginning of your tenure? Yeah, I've been there about um, three months when it happened. Wow. Wow. I don't, I don't envy you on that one. That's a tough one. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, and it's, of course, you know, it, 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 was, it was nothing for me compared to the, to the young woman who had to go through the situation. So, you know, it, and it's sadly that's something that, that we still have way too many um, young women and young men um, victims of, of sexual assault, sexual harassment. So um, it's definitely something where people are aware of in athletics and all across the university. Yeah, yeah. The last thing you mentioned to me about the work that you do with the athletics department and the athletics director in, per- in particular is this idea of risk management around game programming. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, one of the things that um, I that that I wanted to make sure we were doing was just the, what what happens at halftime and it breaks during games. Um, I made sure that our risk management office was talking with athletics about what we were doing during the breaks in games and that our contracts with those third parties that we had coming in um, were covering appropriately what liability might be caused. Um, so uh, um, it, it occurred to me um, actually during a halftime show at one of the football games where there was something that I perceived as particularly risky going on and um, I found out that we didn't that, that my lawyers had not been consulted risk management had not been consulted ahead of time in doing the contracting with these with this group and I thought huh well we should be doing that a little bit better 
And while it was going on, I was thinking, do we have insurance for this? If this goes to happen, do right. we have insurance for this? Right, right. Good good question. Nothing yeah. Was, nothing went badly, and it was all fine. But, you know, so we started. So, you know, that's just a, a matter of getting the our risk and insurance management office to have contact with the person in athletics who schedules all of the halftime stuff so that they can say, okay, if we do this, um, in the middle of the basketball game, do we have insurance for it? Um, or do they have insurance for it? What would happen if the person fell off the unicycle during the halftime show? <laughs> it's amazing the things you have to think about because this is all part of the entertainment that is athletics these days. Yeah, that's, that, that, is, that is absolutely right. That is absolutely right. And I, and I still haven't turned that off. I have... I have um, season tickets to Vanderbilt football and basketball, um, men's basketball, and I still, my husband will tell me, relax during the halftime show, and I just, I can't turn that, that gene off. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally understand that. And briefly run us through kind the kinds of things that you want to make sure the trustees don't get blindsided about. Yeah, and this, this goes, Karen, just to, like everything else, with, my, with the trustees, you want to make sure that they are not surprised by anything. Um, now, of course, as a matter of university governance, there's some things that you have to get their approval on, that they have to be briefed on, so the extent that there are lawsuits that are going on where athletics is involved, you have to give them those briefings. To the extent there are contracts that require approval by the board, you have to get their approval of those contracts. But then, um, I would be briefing them on the same kinds of general environmental things that I would brief the, the chancellor on. So I made sure that um, I got time with the athletics committee to talk to them about the name, image, and likeness litigation, about um, the pay-for-play litigation, to put the seed in their mind, you know, years before they have to address it, of things in college athletics are changing, and there's probably going to be a time coming in the future where uh, the athletes, student athletes, might get paid a little bit more, might get compensation in addition to their scholarship, or be able to get compensation in addition to their scholarship. And our, our university might have to choose what they want to do faced with that. So that that decision doesn't hit them like a bolt of lightning in 2022 or 2023, but they've been hearing about it for 10 years. This is coming, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. Um, and the concussion litigation, so that when we were sued in concussion litigation, they've been hearing about the possibility for two years, um, that kind of stuff. And it allows them to have discussion and talk about things, and that gives me some some guidance. Gave me some guidance on, you know, risk tolerance and um, their views on things. But more importantly, just gave them, like I said, an, uh, an ability to start adjusting their brains to what might be coming down the pipe. Because, you know, everybody says it, um, and everybody was saying it from the first day I was at Vanderbilt. College athletics is going to look a lot different in the future. Um, and it doesn't yet, but I think that future is getting to us really quickly. Yeah, 
I think so too. I think so too. Would you regularly attend the trustees meetings? Yeah, I, I attended. I attended all the board meetings. Okay. And I attended every. I attended every committee meeting of the board as well, okay. um, except for the um, compensation committee. I did not attend the compensation committee meetings. Okay. Okay. So as we wrap this up, you've obviously kept a close eye on what's going on in college athletics today. If you were still the general counsel, uh, what kinds of things might keep you up at night in terms of college athletics? Well, you know, today it would be COVID-19 and um, right. what I was going to do about that, but I'd be thinking about COVID-19 and a lot of different axes. I think that long-term what I would be thinking about is that um, the, the pay-for-play uh, possibility uh, because I think that sometime within the next you know two years three years uh, the NCAA is probably going to have to loosen up a whole lot on the way that it regulates what student athletes can how they can be compensated and I think that's going to mean that conferences and then schools are going to have to make decisions about what they do and where do they want to compete? And, you know, those are just really interesting decisions. And I don't know that all the boards are really um, ready to make those kinds of decisions because they have real consequences in terms of your academic mission and the kind of uh, revenue you're going to get for your athletics and what your alumni think. And so there's just a whole lot of um, axes you've got to be thinking about. And, you know, right now we're all waiting to see what the NCAA um, you know, committees come up with, or I guess what they've done is they've kicked it to the different um, divisions to come up with rules to be consistent with the California law, but also with their ideas of amateurism. And I have no idea what those rules are going to look like. Right. So we could be in for, you know, 10 more years of litigation on all of that. Um, but California seems ready to, you know, move ahead. And I don't know how long they'll be able to tie it up in litigation. So that's that's what I that's the big picture thing I'd be think, I'd really be thinking about. Right, right. Well, I, I really appreciate you you providing such a clear um, inside look into the relationship that the general counsel has with these three different key entities on campus. And actually, it really demonstrates the amount of foresight and planning that you have to have before you go into any meeting or set of circumstances uh, that, that works on the best for the best interest of the university. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you, Karen. My pleasure. Glad to have the opportunity. Absolutely. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Back in the dark ages of 2014, we as a country were having a legitimate debate about the emerging and increasing importance of the internet in our lives. On one side, some argued because the internet was not called a utility, think electricity or water or sewer, it did not need government regulation. The corporate world would absorb the costs of building the millions of miles of wires, cables, launching satellites, while assuming responsibility for connecting it directly to our homes. In exchange, our local municipalities ceded monopoly rights to communication companies for up to 15 years at a time, causing pricing to spike and creating a growing digital divide among middle and low-income families in our cities. But hey, at least we had something approaching connectivity for most people. 
The other side loudly argued that the internet should be treated as if it were a utility. The definition of a utility is that it's an important service, such as water, electricity, or gas that is, quote, provided for everyone, unquote, and that everyone pays for. Surrounded by the fervor over something called net neutrality at the time, advocates felt that achieving the true potential of equal internet access for all American was an inherent right. The effort failed with the change of administrations. But now new questions have emerged since then. <clears throat> Today in our coronavirus world, we rely on our home connectivity for almost everything, work, school, family, friends. Should employees be expected to work from home if the government closes their workplaces? Or should just those employees who can afford to pay $100 or more a month for their internet access? Should the student who is told to leave the residence hall go home to a house or apartment that has no internet access, knowing their broadband was turned off because one or both parents have been laid off? How do they then complete their education? Consider your situation right now or your neighbors. Could you apply for unemployment without the internet? Could you do your job remotely without the internet? How would your children access online learning? Telemedicine is about the only way to see a doctor today. Would you be able to connect with your doctor? In this new world, how much more important is high-speed internet to your home and your family? Would you be able to work remotely at all? Would you still be receiving a paycheck if you didn't have access to the internet? Would you be able to hang out with your friends, family, anybody else that's in your circle of life? In our new normal world, one could argue that broadband has no longer become a luxury subject to the cartel-like whims of a single local provider. Instead, higher education should reframe the discussion of whether higher speed internet should be treated as a utility. Could we find anyone today who wouldn't agree the internet is essential to our daily lives? Higher education should be a leading voice here. The opportunity is flashing like a red light. If, as some have been saying, our future is online, we must be on the forefront of advocating for our students. Logging into the digital world is critical, no matter what your economic status is at the moment. Access and affordability are often used terms to create democratic spaces in higher education. After this pandemic passes, I suspect many colleges will begin to innovate around the difficult lessons we are learning now. Nearly all of the hard-won insight will inevitably point towards more online activity, not less. Higher education needs to take this crisis and turn it into an opportunity to reframe the debate. And let's start with how we share knowledge and who has access to it. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us for another week of thinking about college athletics from the 30,000-foot perspective. In case this is the first time you are joining us, the podcast drops every Thursday morning. You can listen to previous guests and topics on eight different podcasting platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. Each week, I will strive to give you a deeper understanding of the complexities of higher education and intercollegiate athletics in the 21st century. Please also join me on Forbes.com for additional content and extended analysis. Have a great week.